Pretend for a moment that you are a special education teacher, and about a decade ago, you noticed something weird starting to happen. Your school started turning away some kids who needed special ed. Nobody seemed to know why, but there was this new pressure to reduce the number of kids in special education. And then one day, you get a call from a reporter who tells you about a state policy that has never been reported, a policy that seems unbelievable, but that you definitely believe. In approaching them, what was interesting was that, again, the vast majority of them had no idea that this policy existed. They had felt pressure to keep their special ed numbers low, but they had no idea why, and it had been a, it frankly had been a mystery to them that had frustrated them. That's Brian Rosenthal, a reporter with the Houston Chronicle. He spent months talking to hundreds of people and fighting for hundreds of records, all to find out that the state of Texas was arbitrarily blocking tens of thousands of children from the services they needed. The series, simply titled Denied, hit the journalism jackpot. And I'm not talking about awards, although Brian has already won several for the series, including a George Polk Award. More importantly, the series initiated immediate statewide change. After the news broke, Texas lawmakers threw a fit. The federal government launched investigations into a dozen school districts. Several bills are circulating in the state house in response to Brian's reporting. But most importantly, Texas stopped doing this. Because of these stories, the policy was ended. On today's episode, Irie's Aaron McKinstry got the story on just how that happened. I'm Blake Nelson, and you're listening to the Irie Radio Podcast. In 2016, Brian Rosenthal was searching for a story to sink his teeth into. Brian normally covers the Texas State Legislature for the Houston Chronicle, but they only meet every other year. In the off years, he has time to pull back the curtain and undertake deeper investigations. But when in mid-March, an advocate from Disability Rights Texas approached him with exactly the kind of tip he was looking for, he wasn't sure if he'd ever be able to prove what he was hearing. The tip was crazy. The tip was that the state of Texas had secretly, illegally, and you know, systematically harmed hundreds of thousands of kids. It's not a tip that you hear very often. The advocate told Brian that kids across Texas were being denied access to special education. He said Texas officials were pressuring school districts to cap their enrollment numbers at 8.5%. Such a cap would not only violate federal law, but also set the bar 4.5 percentage points below the national average. If true, the policy's impact was massive. It had potentially shut hundreds of thousands of students out of much-needed services. He discovered it about a year and a half ago and actually had complained to the state government and to the federal government about this policy, um, which he felt was really problematic. Um, And basically, he'd been ignored. Uh, The state said that he 
you know, didn't have any evidence that the policy was actually hurting anybody, and the federal government didn't do anything. So he was kind of trying to figure out what to do. So he told Brian. Brian took the tip to his editor, Vernon Loeb, and they both agreed it worthy of a full-scale investigation. He launched into the project immediately, but not without a certain degree of skepticism. For the first, you know, at least four months of the reporting, our whole mindset was trying to disprove or debunk this tip. So I was really focused on trying to find another explanation for why there had been this dramatic, unprecedented reduction in the number of students receiving special ed in Texas. Although Texas's special education numbers had dropped by more than a fourth in a little over a decade, causation was difficult to prove, especially when few knew the story behind the policy in question. There was no discussion anywhere. Um, there was no records. There was no vote at the legislature. There was no vote at the no discussion, no vote at the you know, State Board of Education, no notification to the federal government. By 2016, the percent of Texas students in special ed had sunk to the lowest in the country. Even if Brian couldn't prove that CAPS existed, the question of why so many fewer kids were enrolling in special ed still begged to be answered. He began reaching out to experts and collecting enrollment numbers from every state in the country. I ended up talking to 118 national education experts and, you know, looking at a lot of different data about a lot of different possibilities. Um, everything from whether fewer kids were being born with disabilities to uh, whether there had been changes in the assessment um, for, you know, the criteria for kids getting into special ed. Almost immediately, he reached out to the Texas Education Authority to ask for an explanation for the drop. The TEA is the state's Department of Education. The TEA uh, was unhelpful, uh, (laughs) to put it charitably. They um, refused over a dozen requests for interviews. Um, They refused to answer questions by email. They refused to provide background information even uh, about this policy. A spokesperson later told Brian on the record that nobody else from the agency would talk to him out of fear of being sued. The TEA's silence only pushed Brian to dig deeper. He filed more than 100 different records requests with the agency, including a massive request for all internal communication between the state and school districts about the policy. And he contacted 60 school districts and filed nearly a dozen different records requests with each. He also put in two with all 50 states. For those of you doing the math, that amounted to hundreds of detailed records requests to keep track of. I love records. The only thing I love more than records is data. Um, And they're very close in my mind. (laughs) So um, it was so, you know, incomprehensibly, you know, dramatic that we felt like we needed to be absolutely exhaustive in our reporting um, to talk to as many people as possible, as humanly possible, to request as many different records as we possibly could um, to really understand uh, how this, you know, this tip could really be true and if it was true. Brian kept detailed notes and meticulously organized each request and response in a series of folders and subfolders on his computer. Nothing fancy. When a request was denied or came back incomplete, he followed up. One came back with a missing attachment, and when he emailed to find out what happened, it turned out the attachment was copyrighted and he could only inspect it in person. 
so they had just not sent it and obviously not said that, hey, we have this very interesting document, but we've copyrighted it. It's very important to pay very close attention to things like that. And when you see and see something that appears amiss, like an attachment that's not there, um, you know, to follow up about that and ensure that you're doing it in a way that preserves your ability to get the record. While records began to trickle in, Brian started searching for former TEA officials who could provide answers about the policy. He wanted to know, was it even real? Because the agency was small, most people knew each other and one source led to another. He found that if he was earnest and honest, many sources brought up the caps on their own. Nobody had the whole story and most didn't know the reason behind the policy, but after he'd interviewed three dozen former education officials, he began to piece together what had happened. Former officials pointed to five people within the TEA who'd come up with the policy. Of those five, three still worked for the agency. Those three people who still worked uh, for the agency were off limits to us and very unreceptive to uh, any attempts to contact them. Um, The two former people, uh, one of them we spent an enormous amount of time trying to track down and uh, ultimately did track down. Um, she's retired, uh, but she refused to speak with us as well, um, despite our efforts. So that left one other uh, employee. That other employee was Kathy Clayton, director of special education programs for Texas when the policy was created. She now runs an education consulting business. Brian approached her saying he had some troubling findings. He'd heard that five senior administrators had arbitrarily capped special education numbers to save money and they didn't get approval from the legislature or the federal government. He'd identified her as one of the five. Brian said he wanted to give her a chance to share her side of the story, and Kathy agreed. They talked for almost two hours. That two-hour conversation changed everything. And so when I finally talked to this creator and I asked her the biggest question that was on my mind, which was, why did you choose 8.5%? What is magical about that number? That's where they set this cap. She said that the uh, benchmark, she used the word benchmark, not cap, um, was chosen based on the percentage of students in special education at the time. And I, I you know, cut her off. I said, no, 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 that can't be true. The uh, percentage of kids in special education at the time was well over 12%, 12 or 13%. And he said at 8.5. So how does that make sense? And she said, well, um, well, we we based it off the percentage of kids in special ed in, in the time. And then we just moved it a little bit. So Because if you're going to set a goal, you have to make it a little bit of a reach. And so then you can move the number. I was honestly shocked by that response because what that said to me is that this was completely arbitrary. They thought there were too many kids in special ed, and so they just decided to move the number. Um, and so that that was the moment I think that hit home for me. Um, and it was it was more a moment of shock than anything else. After 
four months, Brian knew that the tip that he thought was so crazy was actually true, and nobody had written about it. That is, until now. Of the massive records requests that Brian sent the TEA, the agency claimed that 99% of what he wanted was not public record. The Chronicle took the agency to court, but the attorney general agreed with the TEA. They said those 99% were something called, quote, audit working papers. The special education caps were part of a school district monitoring program, and the state considered that entire program an audit. The state said any documents associated with audits were working papers and therefore not public record. Still, the 1% of records they did release were a gold mine. The documents highlighted an accountability program that judged school districts on several different metrics, from graduation rates to test scores to the percentage of students enrolled in special ed. If you were doing you know, perfect on everything else, uh, but only had a high rate of kids in special ed, uh, you wouldn't necessarily be punished. But the problem is, is that a lot of these schools, you know, almost every school in the state has um, problems in a lot of different areas. By cutting special ed numbers, districts knew they could score better and avoid punishment. Everything from fines um, and uh, required hiring of consultants to, um, in some cases, if districts did poorly enough on this accountability system, uh, the state could take over the district. As a result of that policy being put in place, uh, districts came to see uh, this policy as a cap uh, and did not exceed this, did not want to exceed that, that cap. Coupled with Kathy's testimony, the documents were enough to show that the caps were real and that school districts across the state have felt their effects. Brian began approaching educators and school administrators about the accountability program. In talking with the teachers and special ed directors and principals and speech therapists and, um, you know, any job title you can imagine, we talked to 323 of them. Uh, in approaching them, what was interesting was that, again, the vast majority of them had no idea that this policy existed. They had felt pressure to keep their special ed numbers low, but they had no idea why, and it had been a, it frankly had been a mystery to them that had frustrated them. And so I think the reason we were able to get so many of them to talk to us, and the vast majority of those 323 were actually on the record, um, I think that we were really providing something to them, which was an answer to this mystery about um, something that they had been forced to do and actually felt guilty about doing and had never really talked about. One of those educators was Christine Damiani, a special education teacher who'd left the job out of frustration. The Chronicle interviewed her on camera as part of the series. I felt like the children really weren't being thought about, you know, individually like we're supposed to. So in other words, you know, we're making a parent feel like their child has improved enough to where they could go out into the general ed population, but in fact, you know, we're not really telling them the truth. And I had one particular um, child who was autistic and was doing great in the autistic classroom. And his mom seemed reluctant to agree to this change, but she agreed. And within a month of that change, um, 
He was pulling his eyebrows and eyelashes out. He was crying. He didn't want to come to school anymore. Um, it was it was it was so sad. It was so disheartening. It was it was just awful. That was when I decided that it was time for me to get out of that field. If teachers and administrators across the state were systematically denying special education services to students who needed it, what did all of that mean for Texas families? What did that mean for Texas kids? You think the turtles like me, Mom? Yeah, they came circling down there to eat. If Ronan was getting appropriate special education services or any special education services, he would be able to stay in school. He wouldn't hate school. He wouldn't come home and think that he's bad all the time because they would be helping him. Okay, we're done. If we finish that page, then we'll be done for the rest of the week with math. <gasps> Brian and photographer Marie Jesus first met Ronan and his mother Heidi Walker, whose voices you just heard, at their house north of Houston. Ronan was six. He'd been diagnosed with a condition similar to autism. Being around strangers was difficult, and he often got overstimulated. As a first grader, he'd started expressing suicidal thoughts. When we first uh, showed up to talk to them, you know, I'd already talked to his mom by phone and gotten basically the rundown about everything. And so then Marie and I showed up, and honestly, he spent the vast majority of that time um, in a closet um, because he did not want to be around other people at all. What Marie did is she put away her camera, and um, we just hung out for a while and um, got a lot of information from the parents. And um, then we came back. And uh, the second time was a little better. The third time was a little better. And so, you know, it's just a process of, I think anytime you're interviewing uh, a source like that, you have to work to get them comfortable with you. And I think this was just, um, you know, that kind of on steroids. Ronan is the second youngest in his family of five. When he was two years old, he wandered out of his house early one morning his mom, Heidi, found him outside in his diaper, staring off into the distance, and he wouldn't respond to her voice. Ronan started chewing his clothes and growling at strangers. He often did well at home, but things were different around strangers and crowds. He'd struggled in preschool, and Heidi would eventually taken him out. And when he was set to start kindergarten, his mom requested a meeting with administrators. She brought his medical records, but... She didn't formally request special education services because she didn't know she had to, and the school district didn't offer them. Without special ed, kindergarten didn't go well. When Heidi did formally request services, she was denied. Instead, her son was offered preferential seating and planned breaks throughout the day, and his academic performance worsened. Administrators said his IQ was too high for special education, but when Brian went back and asked federal education officials about that explanation, they said it isn't grounds for the denial of services. Heidi eventually decided to homeschool Ronan. Things had gotten too bad in the public schools, and that was the family's mental state when Brian found them. They'd responded to his post in a Facebook group for special needs families. After warming up to Brian and Marie, Ronan was excited to be part of the project. What's interesting is even though he's six years old, he's very, very smart. And he actually understood what we were doing and why we were doing it and um, knew that 
uh, he was helping other kids. Not to be too dramatic about it, but it was really a, a wonderful experience just getting to know that family um, and getting to tell this story. The Walkers were just one of about 100 families that Brian interviewed before publishing the first article. In addition to Facebook, he looked to disability advocates and attorneys to lead him to families. He discovered a well-organized and tight-knit community. Parent support groups and other special education groups led Brian to family after family after family. What is amazing about this particular story is that the impact, you know, disability is something that does not it's not exclusive to one um, socioeconomic group uh, or uh, location uh, or race. And so everybody was affected by this. The interviews with families took Brian and Marie across Texas, from inner city Houston to Laredo down by the southern border to a rural town in East Texas called Frankston. You know, this is from a very small town in East Texas and, you know, very different than Austin, Texas, where I live. You know, these are huge uh, Trump supporters and, um, you know, very, very rural lifestyle and um, uh, hunting and fishing um, is basically all they did. And um, this kid was, he was 17 years old and he had uh, attempted to commit suicide twice and had not uh, gotten any help. And you can imagine in a community like that, the topic of suicide is very um, taboo. They were very reluctant to speak with us, um, uh, and it took a, a good amount of convincing. But they also were, you know, completely open with us once we got them on board in a way that some people in, you know, the suburbs of Houston uh, <laughs> are not. They're not as willing to let you see the nitty-gritty of their story in a way that um, that these people were. Of all the subgroups affected by this policy, English language learners were hit the hardest. They were also some of the most difficult victims to find. Texas educators have been told that too many English language learners were being put in special education, but Brian found the opposite to be true. In fact, only one out of every 14 English language learners was receiving services like tutoring, counseling, and speech therapy in Texas in 2016. That's compared to the statewide number of around 1 in 11 kids among the general population. And remember, that number in itself was the lowest in the country. Before the caps were implemented, the difference between the two groups was not nearly as stark. Brian used his college Spanish and Marie's translation help to figure out what the caps had meant for some of Texas's most vulnerable families. It was actually easier to gain those um, parents' trust because I feel like those families... They're a community that nobody really, you know, talks about and um, seems to care about, I think, from their perspective. So I think just the fact that we were showing interest in them and, you know, especially like a, you know, a white guy like me with a with a terrible Spanish accent, but trying, um, I think, kind of in a way endeared me and endeared us um, and uh, made it so they were actually... You know, it was it was actually easier to uh, reach them than other families. The the challenge was with them was finding them, because they are not as active in these you know community groups um, and in these Facebook groups and uh, at least not that we could find. 
you know, I think it's kind of an isolating experience to be in that situation. After four months of work, Brian presented a list of findings to the TEA, and the agency finally provided a statement. They denied they'd kept kids with disabilities out of special education. They said the enrollment guideline wasn't a cap, but a, quote, indicator of performance. And they said better teaching techniques that decrease learning disabilities caused the decline in enrollment numbers. Yeah, you heard that right. They said a different style of teaching could make learning disabilities disappear. But the investigation found no evidence to support that theory. After hundreds of interviews and document requests, Brian didn't buy what the TEA was saying. The Chronicle decided to publish their first of seven stories. I think the goal the whole way was to have a set of kids that accurately represented the who was being affected by this and also showed how widespread the impact was. I mean, again, uh, something like hundreds of thousands of kids were affected by this. He knew that the people they'd talked to were only the tip of the iceberg. We, we knew that there would just be a, a flood of people that had been affected by this and helped implement it and seen it play out. Um, and we also wanted to encourage other news organizations to look at this as well. I mean, Texas is a huge state, state of 27 million people. Um, five million school children. We can't look at uh, everything. And so we really wanted to start a conversation. Brian's editor told him the biggest stories required the quietest writing. With that in mind, he wrote the first story in September 2016, summarizing the policy and telling Ronan's story. As expected, uh, a flood of hundreds and hundreds of parents and uh, former and current educators and um advocates and, you know, all kinds of people uh, contacted us and, and really, um, you know, they shared their stories with us and they really helped our understanding of it. We could have written, you know, a hundred stories. Up until that point, Brian had worked with photographer Marie, designer Jordan Rubio, and data journalist Rachel Gleason to piece together the multimedia project. But with a flood of sources coming forward, two more reporters, St. John Bernard Smith and Susan Carroll, joined the project. After spending six months on part one, we had four months to spend on parts two, three, four, five, and six, and seven. In all, Brian talked to almost 400 families, and hundreds more contacted him that he wasn't able to talk to. We have... 1,200 different school districts in Texas. And this policy played out in 1,200 different ways. The Chronicle knew they couldn't cover the entire state, so they decided to upload all of the documents and data to the project's website so that journalists across the state and the country could use them for their own projects. We were never going to be able to write about what was happening in, you know, Brenham and Odessa and, um, you know, Brownsville. And by putting it out there and allowing other people to uh, in those individual communities um, to do their own stories, and all the people in those ones I mentioned did, um, 
it allowed uh, there to be more of a conversation and uh, allowed uh, there to be a fuller understanding about this policy. Like, we were not worried about getting scooped on something. You know, we, we had already, you know, uh, picked this policy apart and picked, picked this issue apart so well that we, um, you know, did not have that concern. The extent of their work didn't go unnoticed. The state of Texas noticed. The federal government noticed. There was a bipartisan uh, course of uh, outrage. Three weeks after we uh, had published Part 1, uh, the federal government sent a preliminary letter to the state uh, saying that it was very troubled by this and that it uh, wanted the state to immediately end this policy and provide a plan for uh, providing compensation to the kids hurt by this policy. Although still denying that anyone was hurt, the state agreed to end the policy, eliminating the accountability system that Brian uncovered. The federal government came to Texas to hold a series of listening sessions with the public and the hundreds of families affected. They're currently investigating 12 individual school districts as a part of their overall investigation. And the Texas state legislature has introduced eight different bills to address different aspects of the policy. Real change. I I got into journalism to do meaningful work and to um, spotlight uh, issues, start conversations, and ultimately, um, you know, make things better. And so to have an opportunity, especially as a beat reporter, to spend 10 months digging into an issue in a very, very deep way um, and to see it have results was very gratifying. Thanks for listening. Those federal investigations continue, and Brian recently was hired by the New York Times. If you want to investigate special education in your state, the Houston Chronicle's website for this project has data for every state in the country. In addition, the National Center for Education Statistics also keeps a lot of data related to special ed. We'll have links to both in our episode notes. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. To make sure you always have the latest episode, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and head over to ire.org slash podcast to browse our archives. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Aaron McKinstry reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Blake Nelson. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Cool. Okay. Podcast.